0: Dear Father, uh, what wondrous things are in store for us, and you have planned them to the last detail, and in your word, Father, you give us so much advance notice, so much detail on what's coming, and Father, we have not in all cases given it the time and the attention we should, we know that, but we're here, and we're ready, Father, so help us understand where you're going and where you're taking us and where you're taking the world. And let us be uh, better ambassadors for what we learned tonight. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Welcome back, friends. We begin our examination tonight into the events of Daniel's 70th seven, which is better known, of course, as tribulation, which is what we've been leading up to now for the last several weeks. This is A period of history that is the culminating period of the age that we are now a part of. And in this period of history, which is yet to unfold, the Lord's going to carry out a series of, uh, I guess, world-shaking judgments. And the screen you see behind me now is the summary, really, of what we have done in the last, what, two months of time? So up until tonight, we've gone through as much background as I think you would need to get into the last seven, Daniel's 70th seven, and according to Daniel 9, when we studied there, we learned that this last period, which up there, as you see on the screen, is that hashed red area under the last seven of Daniel's 77s. Daniel 9 told us last week, and as well Leviticus told us last week, that this is focused on the Jewish nation, that that seven-year period has to happen because of Israel and because of the covenant that God established with Israel. And so, as you might expect, a lot of what you know in the Bible about that seven-year period is found in the Old Testament, and of course, some in the New as well. And in the Old Testament, you find the prophets of Israel repeatedly warning them that there would be a coming period of judgment, that it would bring the, the nation essentially to its knees, and then ultimately to Christ, and in fact, that's its real purpose, This last seven of Daniel 77s is meant to bring the nation of Israel to a recognition that Jesus was and is their Messiah. And as we prepare to enter into this part of the book, uh, I want to remind you of how we got here just for a moment. That is, I want you to remember what we learned leading into this moment, that tribulation is the final seven years of this age and the last period of this history before we get to Christ's second coming in the kingdom. And that's the red area up there. And that told us that the second coming of Christ cannot be imminent. Not until you get to the end of the seven years of this point of tribulation. Until you get to the end of that, Christ's second coming can't happen. So there is no doubt that his second coming is not around the corner. And then we learned that the church's time on earth would end prior to the beginning of those events. And the end of the church is the unknown that Jesus said you cannot know the day and the hour of. That's the thing that is always imminent. That's the thing that not even the son knows, he said, only the father. So when people have often, as you might have heard I'm sure, thrown around, oh you can't know the end, you can't know the end, that just shows you how little they know. Because what they're saying effectively is, it's all unknowable and I'm so confused I couldn't tell you what's what. What you now know is, well, it depends on which end you're talking about, friend. If you're talking about the end of this age, when Christ returns, oh, we can know that very definitively from a certain point. If you're asking when the church is gonna be removed, you're absolutely right, we don't know. That's why we're to be always ready. You see, it just depends on what you're talking about. We went through that. And then as we learned that the church is leaving sometime prior to the beginning of that seven-year period for among other reasons, because as the book of Revelation showed us in its outline, the times that are, the church age, gives way to the things after these things, which is the time of tribulation and beyond. And so as we look at this connection now for a moment, we learn that the events that are appointed for Israel in the tribulation are not appointed for the church. We are not appointed to that wrath, they are. And so we don't take part in it. And secondly, or thirdly, we're not a party to the covenant which mandates the tribulation. The old covenant is what mandates that a tribulation should happen. And you are not party to that covenant and so it does not apply to us as the church. And then finally we saw John in heaven in chapters four and five witnessing Jesus present with all the church there having received their rewards and their new bodies. And as he's there with Jesus, he's opening the scroll and that land deed that he opens is his opportunity, his right to judge who shall possess the land of Israel and the world, for that matter, in the kingdom. And the opening of that scroll is what drives the events of the tribulation forward. And those are the events in chapters six through 18. So we have the things that are, we have the church removed, we have the things that then are reserved for Israel, which are the things after the times that are. And then we have the scroll that, as it's opened, will drive forward the events of those seven years. Alright? That's what we've done up to this point. Now we've already learned that the timing of his second coming can be known precisely because as you see up there on, or behind me I guess, you see it says the covenant being made. That was a specific reference in Daniel chapter nine with regard to how the beginning of that last seven begins. And I want to zoom in on that little moment for just today and going forward for a while, that is, we know that, that the event of the church disappearing is unknown, the timing of that is unknown. We know that the beginning of the tribulation though is well understood, it's, a, it's the start of a covenant. What we don't know is the space in between. That is, I would really like to know more about the transition out of one and into the other As we begin talking about tribulation, and maybe most specifically, I would really like to know if there are any signs, any indications, any warnings that the Lord might be giving us, or the world at large, that might indicate that, though I know I'm already in the seventh period of the church, I want to know if I'm really near the end of that seventh period, and therefore, at the end of all things, and at the beginning of tribulation, soon thereafter. I mean, that's really the focal point we all have in our minds, right? are there any signs? If there were signs given in the Bible, things that you often hear people talk about, like, oh, it's near the end, we're at the end. Well, wouldn't it be nice to know those, to look for them? Because if you start to see them, although the rapture has always been imminent, it's really imminent when you start seeing those signs, right? Well, as it turns out, there are such signs. The Bible does give us those signs. So we're going to start tonight Before we launch into the little red part there, we're gonna start tonight talking about what are the signs that tell you that you're right at the brink of getting into that new period of history. And they're very clear. Some of this you've seen if you've followed some of my teaching, but let's go through it again anyway, and there's some new things, I'm sure, for all of us. It comes out of the Olivet Discourse, which is a passage in Luke 21, Matthew 24, also in Mark, which Jesus uh, gives to the disciples in answer to a series of questions. So we're gonna go through what they asked him, not all of what he does here, because we have some of this reserved for later in our study, but a couple of things tonight that we need to cover. it starts in Matthew 24, verse one. Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. And he said to them, do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. And as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, well, tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? All right, so I have already put on there the first, uh, underlined the first of these questions. Let's break them all out for you. But as I do that, I want to give you the background on why this scene took place. This is two days before Jesus' crucifixion. In that week prior, as he came into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, he's been spending the time in that week teaching in the court at the temple every day. And then at night he would leave, go out the east gate, up the Mount of Olives, off the backside of the Mount of Olives into a place called Bethany, and he would spend the night there. And he'd come back the next day. Um, this day, uh, two days before he's to be crucified, as he exits the temple, he, you, know, you, you can expect Jesus is thinking about his death. I mean, he's, he's aware of the timeline. But the disciples are oblivious at this point, so they're sightseeing, and as they walk out of this temple, they're remarking about it to Jesus. Look how impressive this building is. Now keep in mind, Herod's temple was one of the most impressive construction projects that's ever been undertaken on earth, ever. Uh, We still aren't quite sure how some of the massive foundation stones that sit at the base of the temple retaining wall were even constructed and moved into place, much less done so precisely. It's an amazing work uh, of archeology, span I mean, sorry, of construction. And you also have to understand that building took a long time to finish. It wasn't completed until 40 years after Jesus died. So at the point where Jesus is here today, the building is still under construction. It's still a novelty to those of that day, which is why they're remarking about it. It's like watching it go up before their eyes. Now, it had been largely finished by this point, so it was in use, but there was still other work to be done. And As they pointed out, Jesus responds with these very serious words provocatively. He says, this massive building is going to be torn down stone by stone. That would be like someone telling you or me that the World Trade Center was going to be knocked down and not a stone left unturned in its day, right? It's kind of hard to believe. And yet, if it is true, it would mean that maybe the end of the world has come or so it would seem, for something that massive to fall, especially when you're talking about God's temple. You know, they think, as Jews, that the Lord would never let anything happen to it, maybe. So he comments to the disciples on the way out, and I suspect the rest of the walk to Bethany was really quiet. And then they get to where they're going, and they finally decide they gotta ask the questions. And so they ask Jesus a series of questions. And the questions that he's asked in chapter 24 become an outline for what he says in chapter 24 and 25. And in verse three, Matthew records three questions. He says, first, when will these things, referring to the temple destruction, when will these things happen? And then secondly, he asks, what will be the sign? They ask, what will be the sign of your coming? And they ask that because, obviously, if this temple's going away, well, what does that say about you coming into your power? Now, realize, they didn't know he was leaving. So when they say he's coming, they don't mean in terms of a return. They mean it in terms of coming into your kingdom or ascending to the throne might be another way to say it because they've been waiting for this. They know he's supposed to and they keep waiting for it to happen. And then thirdly, what will be the sign of the end of the age? And of course, this makes sense for the same reason I mentioned earlier. If the temple's being destroyed, something bad's happening, we must be near the end. And they put two and two together and they link them in these questions. In Luke's account, you get a slightly different version of the questions. In fact, you actually get an additional question. In Luke's account, you, uh, you hear that they asked, when therefore will these things happen? So in other words, they asked not only uh, when will these things happen, but they also asked what will the signs be of these things when they're about to take place? So let's put all this together. It's kind of easier when you see it all in one grouping. So the apostles' questions came like this. When will these things take place? That's what Matthew recorded. What are the signs of your coming, Matthew? And what are the signs of the end of the age? Also, Matthew. Then in Luke, we have that kind of secondary question, what will be the signs of these things? Meaning the things of the temple being destroyed. Probably because if you know the temple's coming down, you'd like some heads up, so you're not right next to it when it starts to go down, right? Makes sense. Makes sense. Now, that's the way Jesus uh, was asked. Those are the questions he was asked. So, naturally, what follows in this chapter is is Jesus uh, answering these questions. And if you look at one of those in particular, which is number three, that's of particular interest to us. That really gets us back to what I just showed you a moment ago. When we get to the end of the age, when the end of Daniel 77 is taking place, you know, that's what they were interested in knowing also. When do we get to the kingdom age? And so, that question in particular has significance for us. Now, As you look at what's in the chapter that follows, uh, you find this chapter driving a lot of misconceptions and bad thinking and false ideas about what goes on at the end of the age. It's in this chapter that you get people think they find support for teaching on a mid-trib rapture or a post-trib rapture or uh, on, on the fact that the kingdom is already here and it has come in AD 70 and it's not yet future, it's actually present. If you've heard any of those ideas, they all fit into various camps of theology. They're all wrong, as you've already learned from past weeks, but if you wonder why smart people come to those opinions, a lot of it comes out of this one chapter, and in particular, because of two features of this chapter that, for whatever reason, some have overlooked or not noticed. Uh, The first of those features is that when Jesus set about to answer these four questions, three and a half questions, he added his own question on top of the ones he was asked. He added a fourth one. He begins to, in the course of the answers, he will also say to the disciples, what are not signs of the future? And the reason he does that is because some of the things that he does give as signs are similar enough to everyday events that if you don't know the difference, you might be fooled. So he makes it clear what not to look for in the course of looking for signs. Now that's the first thing you have to know is there's actually a total of 5 if you want to count 1A. There's a total of 5 questions being answered in the course of this discourse, not just 4. But it gets even worse because the other thing you have to notice is that Jesus did not answer these questions in the order that they were asked. And if you wonder why would he not do that? Well, because human beings often don't do that. That's not always the way we answer questions. If you throw five questions at me, I'm going to order them or answer them in the order I want to. For whatever reason, right? Jesus had a reason. So, let me show you the order in which he answers these questions. Keep an eye on the slide. All right. If you don't know that that's what he's doing, think about what kind of confusion that introduces. You think, for example, that he's he's answering question number one when he's actually on number four, then you think he's on number two when he's actually on number three, so you start assigning his answer to the wrong question, and you get your eschatology completely jumbled up. Welcome to the modern church. How do we fix this? Well, it's a lot easier than you might think. It's just observation. It's always observation. It's always careful observation in context. Why do I know that these are the ways in which he actually did it? Because if you look at the answers with me, as you will here in a minute, you'll see it plainly for yourself. Now, I'm not going to do all of these tonight because that's not the point of tonight. Tonight, the focus is on that bit of time between when we know the church disappears and when the tribulation is about to start. That overlapping period there, are there signs that tell us we're approaching that period of history? that really comes in just the very first two of these. That is, what are not signs and what are signs of the end of the age? The ones below that, numbers 1, 1a, and 2, don't apply tonight. We'll do those later in a future uh, study as we need to. All right? So what we need to do tonight is we need to look at the answers that he gives to those first two, beginning with the one that he chose to give us, which is what are not signs that we're near the end? All right? That's what we're going to do first. And That comes out of Matthew 24, next verse, verse four. Jesus answered and said to them, see to it that no one misleads you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. So his first warning, and let me show you the, the Luke passage just as a comparison. I'm not gonna do this through the whole of it, but just as a, opportunity here, Luke covering the same thing says this, see to that you're not misled, for many will come in my name, saying I am he and the time is near. Do not go after them, same thing. And he says, when you hear of wars and disturbances, do not be terrified, for these things must take place first, but the end does not follow immediately. Or in other words, these are not signs. Okay, so uh, there is always going to be these things, and that means they are not a meaningful thing to concern yourself with, Um, First of all, you're going to have people who come saying they are Jesus. They didn't wait till the end to start saying that. They've been saying it right up front from the very beginning. This is something that you've seen time and time again. You can still see it today. There's people today that would tell you that they are Jesus, right? Uh, How do we know that we can always ignore somebody saying that they are Jesus? How do we know that's not true? When Jesus does come back, where will you be? With him. So there is no worry that you've missed him. All right. So that's how he can be so uh, absolutely you know, certain about this. There'll never be a way that you miss Jesus at his second coming because you accompany him. All right. So that's, that's not possible. That's why you can be so safe in, in knowing that he's not actually here. And wars are not disturbances that you need to worry about. Um, Jesus says wars and rumors of wars are going to be natural in this age. They don't mean anything. All right? So next time somebody tells you that, oh, there's a rumor of Iran and Russia uh, invading Israel, ooh, that could mean we're right near the end. That's what, well, first of all, that's wrong theology. Secondly, that's not a meaning that you're near the end at all. Wars will happen in the Middle East and elsewhere. They mean nothing. So what does mean something then? What is a sign of the end? If these are not the end, what are the end? Well, we go back to our questions, right? He says, let me tell you what the signs of the end of the age are. And he picks that up now in verse seven. And in verse seven, we read, oh, oh, let me back up for a second. Uh, Remember, here's where you get to know why we've spent time in Daniel, why you've probably figured that out already, but here's another reason. When he said, what are signs of the end of the age? Now you know what that means, don't you? It doesn't just mean the end of all things or the end of the world. It's something very specific. The end of the age of the Gentiles. When is the last of Daniel seventy-seven gonna finish? We now know exactly what they were talking about and here's what Jesus is saying. So his answer is specific to that issue. That hash mark red white area at the end is what they were asking about. All right, so we get to look at that. So let's go look at that. Particular question. For nation will rise against nation, he says, and kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there'll be famines and earthquakes, but all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. That's what you get. That's what Jesus gives us that says you're near the end of this age. All right, so let's take this apart. I'm going to start with the last piece there, beginning of birth pangs, because this sets the standard really for the whole of it. We're looking at something that he compares to birth pangs. And I want to talk about birth pangs for a moment from the standpoint of what we know about real birth pangs and then apply that to what we know about the signs that he says should be coming to end the age, all right? So, birth pangs. Everyone agree with me that it's a painful experience? Being a gentleman, I'm very aware of what the pain of childbirth is like, and if you're wondering how I would be so certain about that, well, I did my homework. It's been... So... Next, we know that birth pangs can be mild at first. It's possible, for example, for a woman to be in early labor and not even know it, think it's something else, or be confused by it. They can come so uh, moderately at first that they're not clear. Um, So that's one of the consequences that we need to apply. The, The signs of the end of the age will be painful. They will be interrupting normal life like a Childbirth does, but birth pains stop you in your tracks and keep you from doing anything else for, for the time it takes to finish, right? And yet they can be mild at first, and so will the signs of the end of the age be. They can be mild. They can be the kind of thing that most of the world doesn't even notice, maybe doesn't even realize what they're seeing, not unless you're really attuned to it and looking for it. But in time, they won't miss them. They get progressively worse. And as the severity increases, People start to take note. Now, keep in mind, what what birth pangs suggests is that the convulsions of these signs repeat. So it's not like there's 50 different signs that get you to the end. There's a handful that keep repeating, getting worse as you get closer, so that people get the point. And in the way birth pangs also work, they increase in frequency, so they get closer together. Similarly, we should expect these things to start happening more and more frequently, as well as more severely. But there's one other quality of childbirth that that I think is worth noting, and I think it's included in this analogy. Birth pangs give way to something. They give way to new life. And ultimately, the birth pangs of what get us into the last seven of Daniel 77s ultimately brings us through that to the effect of the kingdom and Israel coming into glory and us with them. So these are the things Jesus said, well, Mark, the end of the age signs. This is the comparison he chose. So let's think about the signs he now gives us in light of that comparison. So we go back to the passage, and the first sign he gave us was nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Now that sounds an awful lot like war, right? It's, it's almost like Jesus is talking about the same thing he just said not to be looking for, okay? If he's going to be not contradicting himself, then we have to say there's something about nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom that's different than what he said earlier, which is wars and rumors of wars. And how are they different? Well, that answer comes out of understanding something about what the Jewish writers of Jesus' day were saying. These are quotes taken from the time of Jesus, from writing that was going on among rabbis of that day. And as they write, One in particular, Beresheet Rabbah says, kingdom against kingdom, nation against nation is a sign that the footsteps of the Messiah are near. So when Jesus uses the term, he's using a term that was contemporary, something that people of his day knew. They had read it in the literature of the day. It had a meaning. It was essentially euphemism or uh, a turn of phrase for their day that had a very specific meaning. We have a different word for what they were trying to say. When We say nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom. What do we say? We say world war. World war. And that's what Jesus said would be a sign. That world war, or more specifically, a war that involves all nations on the planet in a common conflict is a unique thing. It is rare. In fact, prior to the 20th century, it had never happened. Ever. And then in the 20th century, of course, we got into the first of these, World War I, and if you think about it for a moment, you might say, well, wait a minute, that's not the whole world. It was mostly just a bunch of Europeans and we had to get in there and save them, right, as we like to think. Um, that's not true, that the, the fact that it's only Europeans. That's not true. When you look at all the nations that were allied with one another, supplying troops, materials, uh, or in other ways, supporting the war effort, of the world participated in World War I in a common conflict, dragged in by treaties and, and other agreements. And so that war was unique. In fact, it was so unique, you know, it had its own name in its day. What was that war called in its day? Well, it was called the War to End All Wars, among maybe other names, but that name was given to it because the concept was, man, we'll never do this again. I mean, this is so weird, and strange, and different, and uh, you know, certainly after this war, we won't do this again. And then, of course, we did it again. Uh, in just a few years later, World War II kicked off, as you know, and think about the birth pangs analogy for a moment. Was World War II worse or less than World War I? Worse, right, worse, more. More severe, like a birth pang would be, right? Getting worse. And 95% of the world was involved in this battle compared in some way. By the way, now you know why he ruled out regular war. Why he even bothered to tell us that. Because he just wanted to be clear with you that you're not just supposed to raise your hands like a chicken with a head cut off every time a war breaks out. But if you see world war, it's a sign. You've had two. Getting worse as they go, okay? So that's a sign, he said. The next one. He said, in various places, there will be famines. And a famine, like war in itself, I guess, is pretty common. They happen, they've always happened. They've they've happened in the Bible, they're happening today. So when you think about, well, what makes for a sign when we think of famine? Well, we have to go back to our comparison again to birth pangs. Uh, When a famine starts to act like birth pangs, then it's a sign. More common, more severe, more frequent. And when Jesus spoke of it, notice he says famines in various places. And what he meant by various places is in places that you don't normally expect to see it happening. All right. They will be more severe and more painful than anything that had been seen generally before. And they will increase in frequency as well. So then the question becomes, are we seeing any evidence of this? Uh, I don't have time tonight to take you through what you could do on your own, which is a Google search, among other things. But there is plenty of evidence that the droughts that create famine in the world, food shortages and the like that, that are out there, have just continued to get worse and worse and worse. And it's more often now in places that you don't expect to see it. Uh, news reports in various times I've found from various places say that uh, even in places today where you don 't normally expect to see famine it 's starting to show up or food shortages are starting to show up, even in industrialized nations, particularly because of the diverting of grain to fuel and other things there 's just a, a reduced amount of crop availability and then you have the problem of growth of population and the change in the price of food because as food gets scarce, the price goes up, fewer people can afford it you know it goes on and on and on so the point is, there's a growing uh, shortage and a growing uh, uh, cost problem for, for many people in many parts of the world. And as the cost goes up and as the shortages increase, it will start to bleed over into more and more places of the world. And think about it right now. If, if uh, the truck that brings the food to HEB stops coming, you get about 12 hours worth of food on the shelves in your local grocery store. That's it. Three days later, you are looking at me for food. You're looking at me as food right so there's there's a there's a tenuous thread of of connection to, and i'm not by the way i'm not saying this so that you guys will go out and throw a bunch of food in your basement or whatever you might do i'm saying this to simply illustrate that it does not take much for god to sort of tip the scales a little bit and all of a sudden famine stops being something you hear about in africa and starts being something you hear about in your own backyard and we're at the early birth pangs of this it's not the end it's just the beginning And so as we move further ahead, the sign will only increase. And then lastly, he said earthquakes. Now, the science of earthquakes makes it very easy to measure this one and know whether or not we're seeing anything in the world that should tell us that we're on track, as Jesus said. And so here's what I did. I went to the USGS website, US Geological Survey website, which is the agency in the US that counts earthquakes, among other things. And you can pull up the data Very easily yourself, do a search, see where earthquakes are happening over any period of history and compare and so on. So when you do that, you find that of late, there's been a general rise in earthquakes. This is, uh, the years are kind of cut off there, sorry. It's the top, 1980 to 2009. There's been a general rise, but as you dig in, it gets even more interesting. Uh, Here's U.S. earthquakes for the last decade or so, going back last full decade. And look down there in the bottom right, you see that increase? And just can look at that compared to the previous years in that decade. And if you go another step, reading about it, you start to find that this is not just a local phenomenon, not just a short-term phenomenon. There's been a rapid rise in earthquakes in the U.S. over the last several years, in a decade or two. Some of the highest rates ever recorded have been going on in some of these places. Um, I love some of the averages because they really show the numbers uh, let me go back here for a second. If I can pull that last one up for you, uh, Oklahoma. You've heard about what's going on in Oklahoma, along along with Arkansas. Uh, they can't stop shaking. I mean, basically, they see they've seen a tremendous increase. They went from fifty a year to a thousand a year in earthquakes in Oklahoma, and Arkansas is in there too. I love the last line. Scientists have no explanation for the earthquakes. All right, so. These, now, think about birth pangs again. These aren't 8.0 earthquakes that are leveling cities. They don't need to be yet. What they need to be is something that makes a, a pattern that you can begin to identify and say, wait a minute, I think I know what this is, and here you have it. Uh, Oklahoma now has more earthquakes than California. Between 78 and 08, they had just two quakes of three or greater, and then as of June, this was in 2014, they had 207 of those in one year, and that trend began in 2009. <coughs> with 20 quakes, and then 43, and then up to 207, and it just keeps going up. Now they get 1,000 a year. Um, if you look worldwide, though, it's not just Oklahoma. If you look worldwide, this is uh, for the last century, 1900 through 2000, and you can see, especially if you look at the bottom ones, the last two at the bottom, the, the gray ones, they haven't changed a lot. Those that are seven and higher have kind of steady for the last century. In fact, they even went down a little bit toward the end of the century, okay? So then... You look at that on a a larger chart. That that whole first graph I just showed you is on the left there, the 1900s. And now look at the last two decades, almost two full decades of time since we started this century. So the last century, remember, pretty much didn't move at all for 100 years. And then what's happened? It's gone up 43% since the century began. Now, You could be a skeptic and you could say, well, let's see where it is in another century. I'm going to be in heaven. So I'll leave it to you to figure that out down here. But I'm telling you, I know what that means. Because if it were in isolation, I think we could all debate whether it had any significance. But when you add it to the famines, add that to the world wars, add that to some other signs I'm going to show you in a minute, you know, now you're really begging uh, incredulity. I mean, you're saying to yourself, I'd rather not believe this than you are actually looking at the data. This all says the same thing, right? This all says that we are at that point where Jesus said, you're gonna be at the end. We're sitting now at that juncture. So we've had world wars, we've had famine, we've had earthquakes picking up, all of it right here at this point where we are now, right? Signs of the end. But if these are the beginnings of birth pangs, right? That's the analogy again. What does that say then about what happens when you get into tribulation? And as it turns out, when you get into the beginning of tribulation, you find these same three events plus new ones taking place at the outset of tribulation and throughout the whole seven years. And as you move through the seven years, these three things keep happening and get worse and worse and worse. So obviously the worst of it isn't going to happen before tribulation, but it starts before tribulation. At least these three do. So in addition to the signs we've already studied, let me put them all on one slide for you. So this little section we're talking about right now, this little area, there are a total of nine signs that the Bible says to look for to know you are on the brink of entering into tribulation, okay? And that, of course, includes the time the church might still be on earth, at least for part of it. And I'm gonna give you the ones we studied right now. We studied world wars, we studied or we saw increased famine, we saw increased earthquakes. And then on top of that, remember we studied earlier, there would be an apostasy of the church, that's the seventh period of the seven, so we've seen that obviously. Uh, We learned from Daniel that there must be 10 kings ruling the earth before the 11th can appear, before the Antichrist can appear, which begins uh, at the beginning of tribulation. Uh, We know that the very start of tribulation has to be a covenant that's signed with Israel that establishes their ability to sacrifice again. Well, that's the the very last thing before tribulation starts because it's the trigger, but it has to happen. The church has to be resurrected because we're not appointed to the wrath of that period. It's for Israel. So there are two more that we haven't studied. I'm gonna add to you real quickly so that they're in your list. Ezekiel, in chapter 20, gives us a sign that tells us we're near the end. He says, As I live, declares the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out, I will be king over you, speaking to Israel. I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you from the lands where you are scattered and with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out, I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples and there I will enter into judgment with you face to face. As I entered into judgment with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt, so I will enter into judgment with you, declares the Lord God. I will make you pass under the rod and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. That's a promise to bring Israel through the tribulation. And notice he adds there at the end, to bring them into the bond of the covenant, to the old covenant, the covenant that mandates this penalty for having broken it. He says, I'll put you through this last stage of judgment so that you can be brought back into obedience to that covenant. But now notice, he says to get ready for that moment, he regathers them. He wants them all in their land, staged and ready, as it were. I kind of compare it to when your mom told you, go to your room and wait for your dad to come home. So this is God telling Israel, you're gonna go to your room and wait for me to deal with you in the tribulation, okay? So that means that one of the things that we need to look for that tells us you're near the end is a regathering of Israel in their land. So if you've ever wondered why someone would tell you that, oh, Israel's a nation again, 1948, they've come back to their land, 67, they got Jerusalem, yay, we're near the end. Where does that come from? Well, in a general sense, it's reflective of this prophecy among some others that say similar things, that Israel has to be back in their land before the tribulation can begin. Not every Jew, but a presence of Jews in the land. And we have that. And then, in Malachi, and this is something you heard just recently if you're in my weekend studies in Matthew. We studied this passage recently. But in Matthew 4, there's a promise that goes like this. For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evil doer will be tra- chaff, and the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. You will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and the ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, so I will not come and smite the land with a curse. So Malachi speaks of a day of fire and burning and judgment. So we know that's a reference, or I'll tell you that that's a reference to tribulation. And in verse 5, he says that there'll be a prophet sent to Israel, the prophet Elijah, before the great and terrible day of the Lord. Now, here's another piece of data that you've received that now you can connect some dots. What is the great and terrible day of the Lord? Tribulation. We learned that. So before tribulation begins, not in tribulation as some surmise, but before tribulation, Elijah the prophet will return. And why does he come back? Well, remember, he left the earth in a very mysterious way. He's taken up to heaven in a chariot of fire, it says. So We don't quite know what that looked like or felt like, but it it may have just been a way of uh, of God sort of indicating in advance, foreshadowing that he was going to use this man again. And later, when Malachi got his prophecy, we got the point. He's coming back. And as he comes back, it says he restores Israel in a couple of ways. He restores the hearts of fathers to children and children to their fathers. That cryptic phrase refers to Israel being inspired by Elijah's appearance to return to orthodoxy, that the hearts of the fathers, it says, will become like children. Because today in the world, Jews, generally speaking, are not religiously minded, most of them. And even among those that are, they cannot observe the law the way they're supposed to. They don't have a temple. They don't have any ability to keep the law in its fullness. And I can tell you right now, even if they had a temple, the vast majority of Jewish people, given the way they think and the way the world is today, would have no interest in flying to that place and slitting the throat of an animal and pouring out its blood. In fact, I think if, if you know, mass slaughter of animals in a, in a future temple started to happen, in our day anyway, you'd have more Jews outside picketing than you would inside sacrificing. So that's a problem because... The reestablishment of the temple and sacrifice at the temple is a critical element to bringing about the last seven years. Remember, the tribulation itself begins because Israel strikes a deal with a certain man, according to Daniel 9, which results in them being able to restart sacrifice at their temple. But unless Israel signs that agreement, the tribulation cannot begin. We're stuck in an infinite pause until that agreement is signed. And if Israel is not interested in sacrifice, then they won't be interested in the opportunity to build the temple or or sign any covenants. You have to bring them first to a point where they're actually wanting this so that then they pursue it. And so the Lord brings Elijah back to his people to motivate them to go back to pursuing the law zealously in a way that very few do today. And he'll move the hearts, it says, of the fathers, back to the children, which I think is a way of saying he will bring the fathers, the leaders' hearts to a point of like children wanting to follow their father again, wanting to follow the law again. And he will bring children back to the fathers. That's a way of saying he'll bring the nation back to a reverence and respect for what the Moses and David and Elijahs of the world did in their day. They will want to go back to a lifestyle under the law where today they don't, for the most part. That will set the stage for the signing of the covenant that starts the clock on those seven years. So if I put those two pieces together to what we've already learned, I add two more to this list then. I add Israel's regathering in the land and I add Elijah's return. Now you have nine things that will happen before the tribulation. All right? How many of those have happened? Well, as I would count them anyway, you've got at least five of them. Already, either accomplished or underway. So that means we have, we have moved into that period of history that we're talking about. Whether we're you know, two thirds in, one third in, I don't know. Doesn't matter. The church can leave any moment and after that it's all gonna move pretty quick. So we have these nine signs and the final sign which was in that list, the final sign was the covenant being signed with Israel. When that one gets done, Number eight over here on the list. That is the beginning of tribulation, technically, right? So we have these five that have come to pass. The others could happen in any order. That is to say, the church, uh, well, I take that back. The church could not be resurrected after the covenant being signed. So the church has to be taken out first. That's the only prerequisite in that list. But could Elijah return while we're still on the earth? Presumably. Could the 10 kings start to emerge? Presumably. We don't know. There's no connection there. All right. So, the, knowing that we're at this point now where we're getting into the end and we're waiting for some of these last things to happen, in Revelation chapter 6, which is what we do now for the last section tonight, a piece of it, what we see in chapter 6 is the effect of that covenant being signed whenever it happens. So interestingly, the covenant being signed is not recorded in Scripture, not anywhere. But what we have is Daniel telling us it will happen. And then in chapter six of Revelation, you see the consequences of it having happened. So what you're to understand is somewhere between chapter five and six, there is a moment when the covenant is signed and it precipitates the events of chapter six. And really, more accurately, Jesus in heaven precipitates the whole of it. We're just not seeing that one moment. The rest of it is playing out after that. So let's get to chapter six. Now, tribulation, which is our next section, can be broken down into sections of its own. So uh, each section within the book of tribulation, or book of Revelation, each section of the the time of tribulation has its own chapters. So let's just break them out and then we're gonna start to build new charts. Remember I like pictures and charts, we've been working off of that one we've seen now for a while. That one's gonna fade into the memory for a while, we're not gonna need that one for a while. We're gonna now start building a new set. Now when this is all over, you can make a big poster out of the whole thing. But for now, we're going, to, we're going to start building a new one. So we have the first half of tribulation, which is a distinct period in the book. We have the middle of tribulation, which is a very important distinct part in the book, and then we have a second half, which is commonly called the Great Tribulation. These three sections define the time of revelation. Uh, I'm sorry, the time of tribulation. And in these three sections, you can relate them to the various chapters of the book. So we've done one through five already. So six through nine are the chapters that deal with the first half. So the first three and a half years. Then chapters 10 through 15 deal with the events of middle tribulation. And I'll explain how mid works when it's a moment. You know, mid is not a, so much a period, it's a moment. But there's a way in which all these things happen in that moment. I'll explain as we move through that section. And then lastly, of course, we get to the the last part of tribulation which is 16 through 19. Now there's still two more or three more chapters in this book even after this, so that just means you got a whole nother set of charts coming after that, all right? So I love charts. You're gonna have bunches of charts before it's over. So let me just give you an overview and we're not gonna talk about this just so you can see it though. Here's an overview of what is in each of those sections. And I have put up there sort of the highlights that's what we have to cover as we go through those chapters, okay? And again, you're not supposed to know it from just looking at it there, although some things may be familiar, but the point is, this is how we go through the book at this point till chapter 19, okay? And of course, at times, we'll jump out of the book as we need to. But let's start. We talked a lot about starting. Fixing to get ready to start. Now we're ready to start. So from here on, we're going to do the first half of Tribulation until we get to chapter 10, And in the first half of tribulation, what's taking place? You're seeing that scroll that we looked at in chapter 5 with its seven seals. You're seeing the seven seals broken one at a time as we move through. Okay, And as each seal is broken, stuff happens. And we're going to study it in that way. In fact, there's a very interesting kind of pattern that we'll talk about, and I've alluded to it last week. We'll get into it here in a minute. This won't be long. We only have a little bit of time left today, so we're only going to get into the first two of the seals, just to give you a flavor for how that works. Next week, we'll finish not only all of these, but into the next chapter as well. So we'll have a, a good chunk next week. But let's just see the pattern start tonight. Chapter 6, verse 1. Then I saw when the lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying, as with a voice of thunder, Come. I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow. And a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering, and to conquer. All right? That's the first seal. John opens six with the, chapter six with the word "then," Kai in Greek. And it simply means this is the next thing he witnessed. Having just seen what was going on in the throne room, the next thing he sees is the lamb breaking a seal and You have to remember a little bit about that moment. You have Jesus in the throne room. He's holding the land deed. He breaks the first of the seals. And as he breaks it, one of those four living creatures, one of the cherubim around the throne, tells John, come. And what that word refers to in its context is, look away from your immediate surroundings and look to the earth. And we'll see this pattern over and over again. Something will happen in the heavenly realm. And then John will be told to come or look and as he does, he will see something on the earth, and this is the common pattern for what will happen throughout all of the judgments. He is witness to events in heaven and then to events on earth. He's been transported there in a vision, so he's getting the chance to see both in a way that's not possible otherwise, all right? So the opening of the first seals show a series of things happening, and I'm going to group the first four. We're going to look at them all together next week in a summary, but just for your sake tonight, the first four are linked. The first four seals are linked. They are seals in which at each turn, there's an appearing of a different horse with a rider on the horse. Each horse is a different color and each horse has a different effect on the earth. And these four horses and their associated riders are commonly referred to as the four horsemen of the apocalypse, okay? There is no reason to doubt that John saw horses. I'm not saying he didn't. But it's also apparent, as you look at what goes on in the text, that these horses are symbolic. That is, John was shown something which he saw, but its meaning was intended to be symbolic. It was intended to convey a larger meaning than could be conveyed with anything other than a symbol. So the variation in color and the description of what these horses and their riders do are telling us something about what's happening on the earth in a bigger way, in, in, in a larger way, all right? All right. So let's look at the first horse. John says it's white. And in case you didn't know what a a white horse looks like, I just gave you one. It carries an unnamed rider. I didn't put any rider up there. Notice it's addressed, the, the rider's just called he. And you know, when you use a pronoun like that, you'd assume that somebody knows who you're talking about, right? So the last time there was an unnamed he that's been mentioned in the context of an apocalyptic passage was when we were at the end of chapter nine of Daniel, remember? In Daniel 9:27, 27, uh, I'm gonna zip past this for a second. In Daniel 9:27, it says, and he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. Remember that? And we were stuck at that time saying, why does he just throw out a he? Why didn't he tell us who it is? Well, in that context, it's because it references back to a prince of the people who destroyed the temple, or another way to say it is, the one who comes in, in leading the world at the end, the little horn of Daniel. So that told us it was the Antichrist. He's the one who makes this covenant. And it would seem as though in, jo- in the context of, of Revelation 6, we're still talking about he again because the point is you're supposed to connect the dots. You know, if you know your Bible, that chapter 6 is the beginning of the last seven of Daniel's 77s. You would know that if you knew what everything, everything we just studied, right? So the expectation of Scripture is, like I told you on night 1, the expectation is you didn't start reading Revelation without the other 65 books in mind. If you understand the other books, particularly Daniel, and you get to this book, you're already in the right frame of mind. You already know. You're looking at the last 70th, or the last 7, the 70th 7, the one that's being talked about right here, one week. You know that. You know that's where you are in history right now. And so you're looking for the he, because Daniel told you there would be a he. And you come to Daniel to John chapter, or Revelation chapter 6, and John says he, Now, here again, if you don't know the rest of the Bible, you think somebody's just pulling that out of thin air. If you understand what Daniel's told you and how it relates to Revelation, you're already there. You figured it out already because it's the natural connection. And that tells us, that knowledge tells us you've got a rider on a horse representing the man that we've been waiting for who starts the tribulation by his brokering of a covenant. He's riding a white horse and he's carrying a bow And he's wearing a crown. Now, a white horse, typically white horses were reserved for leaders, military leaders, prominent political leaders, even royalty. And a bow, uh, it's an instrument of war, but it's notable that, that John doesn't mention arrows. And the fact that he doesn't would seem to suggest that the man doesn't have any. It's like a guy with a gun without any bullets. And now, if someone waves a gun at you, even if they don't have bullets in it, you don't necessarily know that. And you're gonna take it seriously and you're gonna be threatened regardless, right? So if you're persuaded to comply, even though that person lacked the firepower to carry through on their threat, nonetheless, it still had an effect. So in this case, it looks like the man having just a bow would suggest he threatens harm, he makes overtures, he just doesn't have the means to carry it out yet. But it's still effective at persuading or intimidating. He has a crown, it's in Greek, Stephanos. Remember, that's the crown type that represents an achievement, an award. It's not a diadem, which is the crown that a king received because of their natural right to receive it upon birth. So this is not a man of royalty. This is not a man who was a king. Remember, Daniel said there'd be 10 kings to rule the planet before the Antichrist emerged, but he would not be one of them. He would be an 11th. So he has a a crown, but it's not one of royal power, it's one of accomplishment. That might suggest he's either a military man or a political leader of some kind who has some base of power, it's just not organic, it's not something he had from birth. And so at the very outset of tribulation, the very first seal results in the setting loose of a man on the earth who goes forth, it says, conquering and to conquer. That's what we read in, um, put the text back up there for you. He goes out conquering and to conquer. What do we make of that phrase? Well, going out just implies the world at large, Uh, Conquering and to conquer would imply that he's he's seeking control, he's seeking to defeat, but it takes time, it's a process. It's not as though he appeared and in the first seal he's done. This is the first seal of a period of time in which he has to do his work. And by the way, that also fits some of the things we've also learned about this man from other chapters in Daniel. And so what we're gonna start to see now is the following acts of the seals as they continue to be opened simply pull him along that path of accomplishment that this seal says he's about to undertake. He's about to go conquer. He's got a bow, but he's looking for his arrows, so to speak. He's ready to come on the scene and make a mark. He just hasn't come to, into the fullness of his power yet. And that won't finish for a time. And since we know tribulation begins with the signing of an agreement by a powerful world leader, then we begin to put him into this position. This is a man who could establish at least enough power that he could broker an agreement to to create peace in the Middle East. Effectively, that's what he has to do. If he's going to allow Israel back on the Temple Mount and allow them to go back to sacrificing in a place that today is owned by Arabs... The only way that's going to happen is through some kind of miraculous agreement between Arabs and Jews that arrive at a peace understanding of some kind. Can you imagine what the world would do to a man who could broker peace in the Middle East? How quickly would that you know, shoot you along a trajectory of power and, and, and achievement in the world? Well, that's what God does for this man. He, by breaking a seal, Jesus obviously instigates this, he establishes the man in that way. Um, what do we know about this guy? Well, we know from Daniel 9:26 that he comes from the same people as those who destroyed the temple in AD 70. That's what Daniel is told. The prince of the people or the people of the prince who is to come. So the prince who is to come is the antichrist, and the people of that prince will destroy the city and the sanctuary in AD 70. Well, the problem that presents for us is we know the Roman army did that destruction. So what does it say that the antichrist will come out of the Romans? doesn't tell us much today because the Romans don't exist in as a people group in the same way that they did then. So really, we're left with little more than saying he must be a Gentile. Because you could say he could be European, but then again, North Americans came from Europeans. I mean, Australians came from North. I mean, where do you stop? At some point, it just becomes a game. The only sure thing I can tell you is he's not Jewish. Because he has to come from the people who destroyed the Jewish temple, and the Jews didn't do that. So he's a Gentile of some kind, maybe European, maybe Middle Eastern, who knows, And that man's launch of career is when Jesus breaks the first seal. Now, what else can we learn about him? Well, we can run through a couple things. Uh, I want to talk about what the Antichrist means generally. John says first in 1 John 2.22 that who is a liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. John sets forth a very simple principle. Anyone who denies Jesus as Lord is an Antichrist of sorts. They are a type of the Antichrist in the sense that what is an Antichrist all about? Opposing Christ. That's what we mean by Antichrist. Opposing Christ. So John says, this is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Now, in my English version, they chose not to capitalize the word Antichrist, wisely so, because they recognized John was not talking about the guy at the end of the age. He was talking about a a standard that applies anywhere in time in the age. Anyone who denies Jesus is an antichrist of sorts. They're opposing Christ. John then says this. It is the last hour, just as you have heard, that the antichrist is coming, and even now many antichrists have appeared. All right, this feeds on what we've already learned. In the first instance, the translators should have capitalized the word antichrist because he's talking there about one who is to come, singular. And then he adds, but even now there are many antichrists. That one should be lowercase because that's back to the original point. There are many Christ deniers now. And in the future, there will be the one Christ denier. Okay? So that's the connection between them. 1 John 4.3, John says, every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the antichrist. And in that respect, what he's saying is that behind the person's behavior, there is a spirit That is, we know that every person who does not confess Jesus is not from God, and we know that the spirit of a person who does not confess Jesus is corrupt, they're fallen, they're unbelievers, they're sinful. That's the nature of humanity. But there's also a spirit behind the heart of an unbeliever, that is, the deceiver who has produced in humanity this unwillingness to believe the truth, both in the past and today. And that is the spirit of the Antichrist. So we can, just as Jesus says, you are of your father the devil, to the Pharisees, you can say that to any unbeliever, though they don't know it. Because the spirit that is responsible for their own lack of interest or love for Christ is a Antichrist spirit, the devil himself. And to put all this together, in Second John 7, he says this, for many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh, This is the deceiver and the antichrist. All right, so there is this idea in scripture that those who are fallen have been brought so by a deceiver, that is the spirit of the antichrist leading people to be antichrists. But at the same time, there is one guy who will be the antichrist in the day to come, and behind that man will be the spirit of the antichrist, Satan, giving him his authority and power in that day. In a unique way, in a way that's greater than any individual has ever had before that. And that's the Antichrist that we're talking about. Paul tells us when this man comes, he will do as he pleases as he rises up. He says, Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come, the day of the Lord will not come, unless the apostasy comes first, the church is apostasy, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes himself and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. So what we learn here is this son of destruction, uh, because he is a son of Satan, that's why he's called the son of destruction, he exalts himself above every so-called God. That means when his day comes, he will call himself God and elevate himself above Muhammad or Buddha or anybody else that might be out there. And he eventually gets to the point of taking a seat in the temple that had to be built in order for there to be sacrifice. And when he sits there, he calls himself the God. That's what Daniel 9 told us as well. And he will be responsible at that point for stopping the sacrifice that he started when he signed the covenant. He signs it to allow it, and then he puts himself in place of it at a point in time. So, Paul says, at that point, he will call himself God, and he becomes a man that's more powerful than he started at that point. We get to that later in this study. And then Paul says this, almost done, just a couple last details. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2.5, and we studied this one already, he says, do, not remember, do you not remember while I was still with you I was telling you these things, that what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way, and then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonder. Now you remember how we looked at this before, right? Two weeks ago, we said that the restrainer here, the Holy Spirit, has prevented the rise of the Antichrist. Knowing what we know about the spirit of the Antichrist, here's what you're learning. If it were up to Satan, he would raise the Antichrist any moment he could. From the moment he could, he would do it because there are antichrists everywhere for him. He's the spirit behind all unbelievers. He would just assume raise any one of them up to do the the opposing of God that, that we see happen in the last day. But there's a restrainer in the world. The Holy Spirit stands between Satan and his desire to do that work. And God's purpose in causing his spirit to indwell the believer during the church age is at least partly responsible for holding back Satan so that prior to our removal, here, here again, another reason why the church must be off the earth before the start of the tribulation because we hold back its start, effectively. It's, Satan cannot have, before, before the church is removed, Satan does not have the freedom to do what he wants, why? Well, here's why that's true. First of all, go back to before Jesus appeared. John said earlier, you know that it is now the last hour because antichrists have appeared. Why is that a sign that we're in the last days? Because before Jesus was known to be Christ, you could not be an opposer to Jesus. If you go back to David's time, Solomon's time, Abraham's time, you couldn't be an antichrist because you didn't know who the Christ was. You can't oppose him until you know him. So until Jesus was revealed to be the Christ, no one could be an antichrist. They could just oppose God in a more general sense. Now that Christ has been revealed, now you can have antichrists. And that's how you know you're at the end because the Christ has been revealed. We're at the last days. Now, if Satan wants to rise up and lead the world to follow an antichrist, what stands in his way? A world of people who know who the real Christ is and won't follow the wrong one. He can't get his start in a world that is fixed on the right one and knows the difference. But when all who know the right one, every single person who knows the right one is gone, now there's nothing holding him back from leading them to worship something in place of Christ. So we hold it back by effectively testifying to the true Christ. And Satan is focused on counterfeiting Christ and will do it as soon as he's able. So ironically, the rise of this Middle East peace broker that comes to save the day, backed by Satan, his arrival only has the effect of bringing the opposite of peace in the long run. And last thing, sorry, last thing, this is very quick, this is our last seal tonight. Revelation 6, 3, the second seal, it says, when he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, come, and another, a red horse, went out, and to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth, and that men would slay one another, and a great sword was given to him. So that's the effect. Now, the first seal, at the opening of the first seal, you had a horse and a rider and things happened on earth. Second seal, a horse and a rider, things happen on earth. The first one, the white one, was the arrival of the antichrist on the world stage and it conveyed the man's initial effect. What was his initial effect? He gained power, threatening war, intimidating. That horse symbolized his arrival. Now you have a second horse similar to the first one. It communicates something similar but different and the fact that you have the same symbology though, man, horse, and effects on the earth, tells you it's not a new man, for there's only one antichrist. It tells you it's a progression of that man in his work. So at the second seal being broken, the antichrist now moves to the next stage of his career path, if you will. And what comes after a man threatens war? Well, the promise being fulfilled. And this horse being red represents bloodshed. And in verse 4, we're told the effect of this horse is to take peace. From the earth. So, in some rapid series of events, he goes from brokering the peace and being a man on the ascending path of power in some way to finally gaining what he's been seeking, which is military might. And in the course of some series of events, he literally begins World War III. Remember, birth pangs. So, the third world war that the world is worried about, let me tell you, don't worry. It doesn't come until tribulation, we won't be there. But what it does come, it's a doozy. So the Antichrist's power at this point is such that he takes peace from the earth, not just from a corner of the earth. That's how I tell you it's world war. He takes peace from the earth. And so the man who came conquering and to conquer has now done so. But it's controlled by Jesus in heaven. All right, so when we come back next week, we go through the next four seals for a total of six in chapter six and then we get to the seventh one and it starts a whole new interesting discussion about the relationship of the judgments and then into seven so we got a bunch to do next week come on back if you're confused about anything I did tonight just watch the video it'll all make perfect sense let's go to prayer father we are thankful lord that we will not be here for what you're going to bring upon this world we know father it's going to be important and necessary for what you intend to do but we also know it's not going to be something we want to see And how thankful are we for the grace that you've given us to escape it. And Father, for the same reason, how much should we be sharing this with others who might not know you yet? For we would not want them there either. So Father, give us the privilege and the opportunity to share this truth with others in a way that would help them see it for themselves. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.